Welcome to Wise at Work, the podcast exploring the intersection of science, culture, and meaning in the workplace. I'm Corey Smith, the CEO of Wisdom Labs, and your host. In this interview, Wisdom Labs' Michael Taft speaks with Raman Frey. For the last 18 years, Raman Frey has built communities, bringing people together around meaningful conversations about art, technology, religion, politics, and philosophy. He started businesses and served on boards of a variety of organizations, and his writing has appeared in publications such as the Harvard Business Review. And now, Raman Frey, interviewed by Michael Taft. Raman, welcome to the Wise at Work podcast. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. So I noticed an article in HBR with you and Arjun Arora talking about basically being nice at work, which is our chief topic here. And of course, Arjun's been on the podcast as well. So what can you tell us about being nicer at work? Well, so I was thinking about that this morning and the analogy popped into my head of the Hippocratic Oath for doctors. Okay. So first, do no harm. Right. Don't hurt people. Now, I think part of the human condition is we shouldn't become conflict avoidant. We should actually just learn how to have healthy, thoughtful friction when that arises. But if I imagined a Hippocratic Oath in a work context, it would probably look something like you wake up in the morning. There are people who are depending on you. There are people you're responsible to. Just think about the people, not in terms of hierarchy, but in terms of the frequency of interaction you're having and that interdependency you share with them. So the people that you actually run into at work each day. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And then maybe set an intention to do no harm that day. And so doing no harm probably starts with paying attention to emotional tone And someone may not have revealed to you that they've just gone through something difficult. Someone else might be chomping at the bit. So really, it's about being sensitive and considerate. So you wake up in the morning and say, today at work, I'm at least going to try to not hurt anybody or hurt anybody's feelings. Yeah. And I know that sounds self-evident, and I wish it was second nature for so many of us, but we get lost in our own heads and our own drama, and sometimes we forget that. I think setting that intention might be a powerful practice. How have you seen it play out in the world? Checking in with someone and saying something as simple as, hey, how are you doing? And meaning it and making eye contact is a good way to check in and say, you know, we've got to get everything done by four o'clock today. And you know what your part of that is. Do you think that's still possible? So phrasing things as questions, checking in, you know, it starts with being aware of your own emotions. When you're aware of your own emotions and you're not averse to seeing them, understanding them, and in a healthy way kind of expressing them, you're probably going to be less averse when someone around you does the same thing. Great. So this is kind of the aspirin end of this, like trying to make sure you're not hurting people. Is there a part of this oath or part of this intention that would also be more proactive, like actually trying to benefit others? Yes. Before we went on the air here, you and I were talking about the conscious capitalism framework. Yeah. And I was just at the Impact Growth Summit here in San Francisco, and that came up there. And so in this framework, I don't know if you've read the book, but in this framework, essentially, it's not just do no harm, it's actually taking a little bit of extra time, energy, and effort with the people that you work with to think about how your processes, procedures, and the choices you're making can benefit all the affected stakeholders. So there's an ethicist named Peter Singer who teaches at Princeton. He's actually a really funny guy. He's been on the Colbert Report. Those hilarious ethicists. (laughs) Totally. 
And he's famous for writing a book called Animal Liberation. So everybody just thinks, oh, he's the vegetarian guy. But he's actually a very deep thinker on modern secular ethics. And he has a concept in that book called our sphere of ethical concern. Mm -hmm. And so that conscious capitalism framework starts with do no harm, but it also extends how far out are we comfortable pushing that circle of empathy such that our actions are then shaped in a way that benefits, if you were thinking of a standard business model, like the quintessential conscious capitalist business was Whole Foods till Amazon bought them. They had a lot of conscientious practices around, let's make sure everyone working here has a living wage and is treated well. Let's make sure we use a lot of small local vendors and that we pay a fair price to them. And I think that's a wonderful next step is think about where that begins and ends. And you can think about it also in terms of extremes. If you have a mental illness, if you're a psychopath, your circle of ethical concern ends at your skin. Right. I am the only being that matters in the universe. And everyone else is exclusively a means to my ends. Yeah. And so a little of that can creep into everyone's work world. And then at the other extreme would be something like in India, a giant aesthetic, right? A giant aesthetic wears a mask to protect microbes and sweeps as they walk that they don't accidentally step on insects. Yeah. So think of those as the extremes and you can find your happy middle place. So in the giant example, the sphere of ethical concern extends all the way to insects. So I think to some degree, as business people, I've started a fair number of businesses and been part of nonprofits. A fair number of people actually do make that attempt to extend that sphere of ethical concern. You don't have to put it into practice to that same extreme. Because I think a full acknowledgement of interdependence in the world is a full acknowledgement of the biosphere yeah. and the role of human beings. You know, 500 years ago, even, we were just another species. In 2018, it's incumbent upon all of us, I think, to consider that we are stewards of life. All living things are essentially at our mercy now. And yeah. the choices we make in business can have huge, especially if you work at a Fortune 100 company, can have huge ramifications for every living thing on Earth. And we depend on a robust biosphere. Yeah, we need that to exist. So even if we're at the psychopath level of I'm the only one who matters, we still need the biosphere in order to live. Yeah. So how do I bring that into my work each day, that understanding and that ethical concern and the knowledge of how important it really is? These ideas probably sound pretty abstract to a lot of people. And sometimes when I'm having a discussion with a friend who's in a pivotal moment with their business, and they're going to make a big choice, and that choice could cause that business to become enormously successful and powerful, or it could be a negative turning point for them. They're thinking about, how do I incorporate a more wise point of view into this next extremely momentous decision that's immediately going to affect me and my family and everyone who works at this company and everyone peripherally attached to the company? I think that begins with curiosity. We place an enormous amount of value on linear problem solving and deep expertise in our culture. And I think those as sort of orientations to the world, I think those are incredibly valuable. But I don't think they're the only orientations that have value. And so in business leadership, you often have people arrive at a point where they realize they and everyone and everything they care about might be better served by breadth. 
So for instance, at IDEO, they call it a T-shaped individual, right? You have depth of expertise in one area, but you have breadth of interest and some at least superficial knowledge across many disciplines. A T-shaped individual, so breadth and depth. Breadth and depth, that's right. And so I think the beginning of creating that breadth, when all of the carrots and sticks of your life have lined up to create, I am the best broccoli farmer on the face of the earth. The beginning of breadth is curiosity. Mm -hmm. And it can be intimidating because you're going outside of your domain expertise and you're hanging out with people who are far smarter than you on disciplines that are unfamiliar to you. So it takes some humility and some openness. Humility, openness, listening, questioning. So the dinners, I mentioned that I run these dinners. We've done about 200 of these events, dinners, overnights, and retreats. I will sometimes see people who are used to being the person that everyone's listening to. And they show up at our dinner. And for instance, the dinner that we're going to be hosting tonight, my friend is going to be speaking, I think, very specifically about stewarding capital in the direction of regenerative economies. Mm-hmm. And so this is very interesting. This is, this is at the heart of something I'm really interested in now, which is how do we engineer incentive systems? And so that person might feel a little fish out of water there. By that person, you mean the T-shaped individual who's the best broccoli farmer on earth. Right. They don't have a broad T-top yet. I see. Right. So they've shown up. And so I try to pay attention when I get that. I feel that there's somebody there who feels a little fish out of water. And to just check in with them and make a few more introductions so that they can start to ask questions that starts to broaden their knowledge. And so what happens in those scenarios is when you have breadth, you see terrain that no one else sees. Mm. You make connections that other people don't make. Yeah. Yeah. And this goes to creativity theory. If there's one topic I've read more on than almost any other in the last, say, 10 years, it's creativity theory. Mm. I came out of the art world. I was in there for that catalyst, the inspiration that the artist feels, but also the inspiration that the person who appreciates art feels. And I wanted to broaden that into all creative endeavors. I mean, as human beings, I think, you know, we eat, we sleep, we go to the bathroom, maybe we have love in our life, and we make stuff. We create. And we forget that. We forget that it's actually a biological imperative. We do it in different ways, but we are predisposed to make things. And so creativity theory, it's actually a well-understood discipline now, teaches us a lot about breadth of learning, non-linear exploration. Yeah, the Graham-Wallace theory. Yeah, like in French they say the flaneur, the person, you know, all who wander are not lost. You walk out your front door with no destination, and you check in with your intuition, and you follow your impulses as you walk through a city, and you make new discoveries. So as an analogy, you can do that with ideas, and even more powerfully, you can do that in concert with colleagues if you have a lot of trust. Part of creativity theory is understanding that the genius mythology doesn't really serve 99% of people. Yeah. That the greatest creativity in problem solving and learning comes from deeply rooted psychological safety and trust among brilliant people, because what you have then is you have functionally aggregate intelligence in problem solving. When there's fear and mistrust and politics become the predominant thing people are worried about, that networking of brains collapses. And the difference there can be exponential. And so how do we bring ourselves into becoming more of a T-shaped individual? And then furthermore, how do we make that activate in the workplace? I know a lot of people who are very successful in business are very disciplined and regimented. And I don't think that's somebody to be resisted. So if that happens to be you, 
then it would probably require setting aside certain times for you to read something in a discipline that, as far as you can tell, will have no payoff for you. There's no ROI in this, but it's something that you're naturally curious about. The same goes for exposure to different people. So again, with these dinners, the dinners are explicitly not about linear problem solving, and we explicitly ask people, put down your agendas. For instance, Mozilla hired me to do 16 dinners for them. And I know that the employees there found it really refreshing that they were not showing up to problem solve. They were used to all of these offsites and team building things were surreptitious ways to problem solve. And they were exhausted by that. They were instead showing up to listen, learn, and interact with people who had expertise in disciplines that were not even remotely adjacent to them. And so wonderful, unexpected things happen. If you're a software engineer and you spend all night eating and drinking and laughing with someone who's a beekeeper, insights happen. That's, again, the nature of creativity theory. So I'd say exit your comfort zone. Talk to people who are very different from you. Diversity really is strength. The same in reading and same in exploring the world. Now, I mentioned the Graham-Wallace theory, which, as you know, is the whole idea that if you're working on a problem, the best thing you can do after a certain point is just stop thinking about it and go do something else. Right. So how do we bring in that unconscious aspect of creativity to our work? I think the term, and maybe it was in a Stephen Johnson's book, Where Good Ideas Come From, there's this idea of the adjacent possible, Yeah. right, or oblique thinking. To get to the adjacent possible is to lose sight of an objective and to put down the grinding of the gears that looks like the direct route. Like in sailing, if we want to go from here in Aquatic Park over to Angel Island, the fastest route is often not a straight line. It's maybe even a zigzag. It's a zigzag, right? Exactly. And so that's what I would say with this is when you feel most stuck, that's the time to go for a run, to meditate, to read a novel. Go to a dinner with a go beekeeper. To, go to a dinner with a beekeeper. Anything like that. Yeah, and you know, introspection becomes a self-reinforcing process. At least I've found it to be that way. In other words, the more you think about connection internally and externally, the more you want to learn and the broader your vision becomes. If we want to continue to pursue maximally productive and extractive industries on the face of the earth. Any scientist is going to tell you that's unsustainable in the long term. And so becoming more and more introspective and therefore more and more self-aware about how our actions and behaviors in aggregate affect all life on earth is a way to bend business in the direction of things that are sustainable and possibly even regenerative. Now, I've heard you use this fascinating phrase, coding for integrity. And to me, I just have a bunch of ideas about what that might be, other sci-fi and, you know, fantasy. So why don't you tell me what you really mean by coding for integrity? Maybe 14 months ago or so, maybe a year and a half ago, I was invited into the world of sort of blockchain and cryptocurrencies. And the larger category is called distributed ledger tech technologies. And at first, like with so many technology startups, I was brought in to consult on branding, marketing, strategy, that sort of thing. And then I took an in-house role, and then I quickly became a founding partner in this benefit corporation. The intention was to use these new endowable ledger technologies in a way that would have a positive, what you say, ESG impact, environmental, social, and governance impact. 
And so I was explaining cryptocurrencies, smart contracts. I was describing it as semi-volitional information, information that actually proactively goes out on the web and seeks the fulfillment of certain parameters and does it in a way that's indelible and transparent. This could be, for instance, a way that you could say, I would like to sell my house, press one button, and the whole process would be legally compliant and all the taxes would be filed and paid and you would actually be soliciting competitive bids. It's a good example. And it's all being kept on the level via blockchain. Right. At its simplest, this is the ability to create indelible information the way I do when I write in this notebook with a pen, except you have a lot more control and it's digital. And therefore, a million people could instantly see my notebook. Yes. And, and agree nobody, what you wrote in there. And nobody could alter it. Right. We could talk for hours about how potentially powerful that is. Unfortunately, I think it really just became a frenzy of greed, hype, fraud, scams, and speculation. Sure. When it's translated into coinage, then... Everybody's that. like, wow, we just invented a new, more efficient version of digital money with no central authority to rein anyone in. And so it really played out quite, I think, shamefully. But it doesn't change the fact that this industry also has the potential for doing enormous good in the world, especially for people sort of in the bottom half of the socioeconomic ladder on earth. I was explaining these ideas to someone at a dinner party and she said, oh, you're trying to code for integrity. Yes. And I said, kind of. So there's prescriptive, there's coercive, and then there's just this forthright ability to say, we will economically incentivize this behavior that helps educate women in the developing world. And the attempt will be to actually automate a self-sustaining system that doesn't require constant beg and spend input, but can just keep going. We would like to financially incentivize the health of your nearby fishery. Now your very life depends on that, but also your local economy. So we would like to create an incentive system that allows that fishery to be used, but also to thrive. And right now what we have is we have a global monoculture of the shareholder economy and capitalism. And whether we like it or not, that incentivizes three things that are totally unsustainable. The incentives are for hyperconsumption, and that is make far more and manufacture demand. That's unsustainable. The second is wealth polarization. We try to ameliorate that through philanthropy, through progressive taxation. We try to rein it in through rule of law and regulation. But in essence, we're fighting the system we're working in. And that's always seemed strange to me. And then the third is the tragedy of the commons. When your incentive system is set up to be maximally extractive, people just always find workarounds. And so you're going to end up with the tragedy of the commons. All of these shared resources that all life on earth depends on are going to be extracted and exploited until we reach a tipping point where life starts to collapse. Somebody's always going to want to cut down the trees to Because the first mover advantage, man. Yeah. If you cut down that forest, you get rich and we all starve and you go somewhere else and enjoy life in your mansion. And cut down another forest. And yeah. cut down another forest, right. So what we need really is we need to be more creative about reviving certain economies we've left behind and creating new ones. And for me, this is the most noble use of blockchain. 
So how do I take these ideas and bring them into my workplace today or even the workplace of tomorrow? How do I actually apply in my own life these distributed virtue technologies you're describing? I'll give you an example that precedes all these technologies. These technologies simply make these possibilities more viable and visible. They're not the only way to express this intention. The example I often give is PG&E, our utility company here in California. There was a time when PG&E had the same shareholder economy motivations as any business organization. The more electricity you use, the happier we are. We're going to make a bigger profit. And they realized that it was unsustainable for a variety of reasons and got together with state legislature and came up with a creative solution such that they are rewarded and I am rewarded as a consumer for being temperate in my use of electricity now. And all the marketing materials I receive compare me to my neighbors in terms of how much electricity I'm using and say, hey, good for you. If my electricity use spikes, my costs spike too. And that is discouraged. So you could imagine this particular scenario. If they had enough creativity to solve that between the state and PG&E, why can't we do that for all kinds of businesses. So I'd like to kind of bring it back to what can a person listening to this podcast do right now? And I think do no harm, which is where we started. Think about every stakeholder, widen that circle of empathy. And to do that, we do need to kind of drop in and be more deeply connected to ourselves. And think creatively, get some exposure creatively to people that can do nothing for you and have no expertise related to your business. I'm pretty sure that if you make that simply a habit, it'll improve the quality of your life, but it'll also inspire you to think across that horizon. In some ways, that can be the ultimate advantage in business, the ability to see over a hill when anyone can see everyone's fighting for what's on this side of the hill. Thanks, Raman. Great to talk with you. Yeah. Thank you for having me on the show. Hi, it's Corey, co-founder and CEO of Wisdom Labs. At Wisdom Labs, we're helping companies become wiser workplaces. To create this positive impact in organizations, we cultivate change at the level of the individual, team, and company culture. We see businesses as the biggest lever for positive social change at scale. After all, business still holds the most power and influence in our world, And as individuals, company cultures, and entire stakeholder networks become more wise, we all benefit. To learn more about Wisdom Labs, check out wisdomlabs.com. Thanks for listening.